Boy, amen to that. Well done, young people and uh, teachers who invested in that. I know in heaven uh, <clears throat> there's no children. There won't be children forever up there, but in the millennial kingdom there will be children born. I think what children's choirs might be there. The Lord Jesus loves children, and uh, he'll be the same Jesus as he's always been, who put a little child on his lap. And uh, we'll see what that day brings. All right, back in Ephesians 5, if you're not already there, uh, maybe you were listening to that being read and thought, where, where, I don't, where, where's the apostasy in that passage? And it's really not there, so I'll explain myself. I was chewing on the fact that uh, today is Valentine's Day. I hope I don't see any men go pale when I say that. Uh, but it's not that I don't put great, or that I put great stock in the history of the holiday itself necessarily, but it doesn't hurt to have a day on the calendar to show people you love them. And uh, in years past, we've had a Valentine banquet. We did not do that this year. Uh, so I thought it would be an appropriate thing to uh, focus on the subject of marriage this morning. And uh, I probably won't say anything new. In fact, I won't say anything new as far as principle that you haven't heard before. This isn't new truth. There's only so many passages in the New Testament that focus directly on this subject. Uh, but hopefully I can be like Peter in his last letter and stir us up by way of remembrance. I know I don't have to tell you that the satanic attack on society is very well schooled at going after all of God's ordained institutions. What do I mean by that? There's three major spheres that God has put out there. There is the sphere of government. There's the sphere of the church or churches. And then, of course, there is the family. And all those have a distinct role. And uh, the devil, of course, goes after all of them. And especially after which one of those came first? The family. Which one of those did Satan attack first? It was the family. I mean, built into that record in Genesis 3... And that seduction to sin against God was also the sowing of marital discord. That also would have come through that very account as everybody's pointing fingers at each other. Now in America, gone are these supposedly idyllic days of Ward and June Cleaver. They never were idyllic, but you know what I mean. And dysfunctionality has become the new normal and it has been for a very long time. And may I say that a culture that's confused about the definition of male and female, a culture that's confused about whether there is a God and what He is like, and is He uh, like a blend of these ancient goddesses and gods, supposedly, a culture that's confused about those things has zero chance of giving good marital counsel. Zero chance. Unless that counsel comes out of submission uh, to this unchanging, infallible, heavenly guidebook, the Word of God. Now, suppose a, maybe a new Christian or uh, maybe a young couple that's about to get married. <clears throat> Let's say they come up to you and they ask you three questions. Really, these are three good questions regarding marriage. Uh, question number one, what is the connection 
between the filling of the Holy Spirit and a godly marriage? Is there a connection? Uh, question number two, if you had to boil down the biblical role of husband and wife, respectively, if you had to boil down those roles to one verb for each, what would they be? Would they be the same or would they be different? And question number three, what is the highest purpose for marriage? What's the goal? I mean, any truly Christian couple that can answer those three questions with an accurate conviction is well on their way to a marriage union that pleases God. And really, all three of them are answered, at least in part, in Ephesians 5. And I'll point out again, I've done this a number of times going through passages like this, that family counseling isn't just thrown out in Scripture as a separate subject. Uh, passages like this that deal with interpersonal conflict or deal with a harmony in the home and the various relationships, they don't just appear as standalone topics. Uh, first of all, salvation is always critical to the discussion. In case you're wondering, if a lost couple approached me, I'm talking no, no idea what the Bible teaches, obviously not saved, and they came to me and they said, will you do marriage counseling? It may surprise you, my answer would be yes. But here's where we would start. Who is God? Who are you in His sight? What's the real foundation for understanding these things to begin with. And of course, that foundation has to be salvation through Christ. And even as believers, before you get to marriage in the book of Ephesians, you have to read Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, and half of chapter 5 before this even comes up. So in other words, in typical Pauline fashion, and same with the other New Testament writers, a broad doctrinal foundation is laid way before this discussion. Now, why is that? <clears throat> the reason is marriage problems and marriage successes are primarily theological in nature. I know there's other factors that come into play. There's personality, upbringing, habits, influences, circumstances, like finances and health, and on and on and on. But beneath all of that, somewhere... Problems are based on a defective view of God or the nature of man or the definition of sin or the specific roles we've been called to or how to exercise biblical forgiveness. Oh, that's huge. One thing I've found since being a pastor, almost every single counseling situation, doesn't matter what it is, I'm not going to say everyone, but almost everyone involves wrong views of forgiveness, repentance, and restoration. It's a huge topic. Uh, these problems will come out of the purpose of uh, problems regarding misunderstandings of the purpose for our very existence. I mean, you think, uh, what is mankind apart from God? And if you know the Bible at all, you know that really no two sinners on the face of the earth are compatible without the intervention of God. 
I mean, what is the essence of sin? The essence of sin is waving a fist at the heavens and saying, I come first. I mean, by the way, uh, why, why is marital conflict exploding in the professing Christian realm? Don't think this is a problem just in the world. Among those that name the name of Christ, this is a crisis. And uh, you look at the passage we had up last month. What was the first characteristic there of end times apostasy? Men shall be lovers of their own selves. How does that help relationships? It doesn't. Narcissism destroys relationships. I mean, I've heard it said before that if everybody on earth knew everything that everybody else had ever said or thought about them, there wouldn't be two friends left on the planet except where real forgiveness reigned. Hmm? <laughs> so it's paramount that Christian couples have a firm belief that there's no marriage struggle that the Word of God cannot heal, but obviously it's necessary that both parties are yielded to the Word of God. I mean, there's no sinful tendencies that the Spirit of God cannot overcome and retrain and that He doesn't want to overcome and help you to retrain. Let me say this also as a side note. I think it's necessary in a message like this. I've heard people say this, and I know they mean well, but they're wrong. They say, well, the church, it's true, the church is a family, that's true. But somebody will say, well, the church is a family of families. And here's what they mean by that. They mean a, a good church, a healthy church is made up entirely of thriving model homes. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for thriving model homes, so long as that's what they really are. But the reality is, a growing church, this has always been true, a growing church is going to have some struggling homes. It's going to have some broken families trying to put pieces back together. Because people are being reached with the gospel where they are. And do you know something? When somebody comes to Christ, or maybe they've been wandering away from God as a believer, and they get out of the pig pen, and like the prodigal, they say, I'm going back to my father. You know what you can't do? You can't undo the past. Sometimes you can repent of things and deal with it as much as possible, but you can't undo it. And so... A growing church will take people where they are and go forward from there. And let me tell you, the complexity of situations is skyrocketing in these decades. But people still need Christ, no matter where they are. If you look at the early churches, it doesn't take much in the New Testament to see what they contained uh, there was a decent crowd of uh, chauvinistic Jewish men who treated their wives like property. Wouldn't that be helpful? No. 
You remember when the disciples asked the Lord, well, can't we divorce her for anything? And the Lord said, no. It was never that way. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, let you divorce for any reason. And, and you remember what they said? Well, if that's the case, it's good not to be married. Their, their actual thinking was, if I can't hold divorce over her head as a constant threat, I'll never be able to keep her under my thumb. And of course, that came into the early churches, and there were some that had to deal with that errant mentality. There were many, many widows, particularly in the Jerusalem church, uh, whose husbands had been slaughtered for their service to Christ. There were both husbands and wives whose mates had abandoned them when they became Christians, or that were still living with a lost spouse who was very difficult to get along with. The church at Corinth had many former homosexuals. And uh, I think some of the terminology suggests perhaps some former temple prostitutes. Imagine a lady having to come out of that. She's had thousands of partners in religious ritual. And now she comes to Jesus and she can't change what happened. Where does she go forward? Forward. Well, many of the same questions that we have today are just as, uh, just as poignantly dealt with as they were in the first century. Passages like 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Peter 3, etc. And so in those struggling situations, the way out is forward with God, whatever that looks like. But it's extremely important to notice the connection between the husband-wife verses later on in Ephesians 5 and what comes previously. This is all part of the same chain of thought. Uh, earlier in chapter 5, you see the necessity of putting away uh, these outward flagrant sin habits, the big things, you might say. But then he takes out his scalpel and he gives lists of Maybe smaller things, wrongful use of the tongue that needs to be dealt with. He deals with the need to prove or to test, to be able to discern the will of God on an ongoing basis. There is a command to separate from evil influences that spiritually destroy you. He says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. I mean, do I, do I even need to say this? Hollywood will destroy your home. The internet left unchecked will ruin your home. The ungodly counsel that comes from those sources will spiritually destroy you if you don't have your shield and armor on. He tells these people to walk circumspectly. That means carefully. I take any soldier that's not walking carefully in the war zone, he's not going to last very long. He says, walk circumspectly. Get your head out of the spiritual sand because a godly marriage, just like a godly life, doesn't just happen. And then, of course, verse 18, he says to be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. Uh, if you are a Christian, again, you have all the Holy Spirit you will ever get. He completely indwells you. But as you yield to Him, He has more of you. 
and you become a conduit of spiritual power as you're yielded unto him. Now, quickly, before we move on to marriage, we are getting there, but what are the scriptural evidences of being filled with the Spirit? Well, there's a pertinent question for today. Uh, a lot of times what's thought of is theatrics and heroics. And, you know, there were the temporary sign gifts of tongues and miracles and healing, etc. that were authenticating the scriptures as they were being written. But you get to the later epistles like Galatians or like Ephesians. And what are the evidences that the Holy Spirit gives... What are the proofs that somebody is more and more being yielded with the Spirit? Let me say this. Being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time either-or event that you either have or you don't. It does come by degrees most often. The more you're yielded unto Him. But generally what you see in the epistles is not heroics, but being filled with the Spirit is manifested by displaying Christ-likeness in everyday life, in the normal on Monday morning, and Tuesday afternoon, Saturday night. And look at the evidence is given here. Verse 18 in Ephesians 5 says, Be filled with the Spirit. And how's that proven? Verse 19. First, it's going to show through speech what comes out of your mouth. Speaking to yourselves or preaching to yourselves. Uh, bringing the truth of God before your mind constantly throughout the day. It's going to be manifested in singing or deliberately praising the Lord from the heart. It's going to be manifested by thankfulness. He says, always for all things. And a mouth that's full of those things doesn't have a lot of time to get itself into trouble. But... How else is the filling of the Spirit manifested? Again, we're just following the, the progression in this passage. Speaking, there's giving thanks, verse 20. The other way it's shown is by submission. Now, I pointed this out when we were here before, and it bears repeating that that word submission is really the heading over all that's going to be said regarding relationships in this whole section that's going to follow. So the filling of the Spirit is displayed at ground level by this attitude of mutual submission before any specific relationships are mentioned. What is Bible submission? It means to willingly place yourself under something, but, but there's more than that. Bible submission... And you can trace this through all of these type of passages that deal with these various relationships. They're always triangular. What do I mean by that? They're always God-centered when it talks about this. Wives submit as unto Christ. Husbands love as Christ. Children obey parents in the Lord. Servants obey as you do Christ. Masters, remember, you also have a master in heaven. So all of these relationships mentioned under the heading of submission have God as the centerpiece, and they're always whatever's done for the Lord's sake because of who He is and what He says. Now, Bible submiss submission is not passive. It's not lay down and take the boots in the face don't have an opinion, don't have ambition, don't have dreams, don't have a voice, just lay there and do nothing. 
Bible submission is actually an active, ongoing choice and mindset. I think here's a good definition of Bible submission. Here's what it is. It's in fear and obedience to God, I willingly place myself under what He says, which causes me to serve others in the manner that He's commanded me to and that He will enable me to. So Bible submission is a God-centered choice. I place myself under His directives as the God that made me, who owns me, and that I will give an account to, and that I respond to other people according to how God has told me to respond and treat that particular person. It's one of the main bedrocks in marriage to understand that both sides have to be committed to serving one another in accordance with what the Bible says our roles are. And anything else misses the mark. I mean, I've heard well-meaning people in the world, they'll say, well, marriage is just a, it's a 50-50 partnership. And I know what they're trying to say, but they're wrong. That misses the higher picture given here. It's more of a 100-100 partnership where everybody's on board with wanting to serve God and do what He says. Somebody says marriages is all about compromise. Well, depending on what you mean, I get, I get what they're saying, but it's not this contest to take turns each uh, doing something you don't want to do. Again, that misses the point. This is done in the fear of the Lord. So in that sense, if I ask you, husband or wife, which one is to submit? I hope you say both. Because that's a biblical answer. Both. He says submitting to one another before he ever divides up the roles. So, there's a direct connection between the filling of the Holy Spirit and what comes out of the mouth. And a godly view of submission which leads to a godly marriage, which is one of the main acid tests of spirituality. I mean, it's really, I wish I could tell you it's not a common tale. I will say this in case you're wondering, I don't know what this is like. My dear wife and I have had a harmonious relationship. And yes, there's been battles in ministry, wars, hurts. I'm thankful for the communion we have. And I just say that because I don't want to sound like... I'm giving a self-illustration here, but it is a common tale. Here's this husband-wife ministry team, and they're successful. In terms of church size and, and buildings filled with people and money coming in and uh, book endorsements and being well-known, and everybody says, oh, what a successful couple, but behind the scenes they fight like carnal cats and dogs. Whatever they're doing is not a spiritual work. You call it what you want. But there's a major spiritual disconnect somewhere. And I don't mean to be unkind. If you ever want to read the letter I send to prospective missionaries that come visit, one of the things I tell them directly, if you don't have harmony at your home, 
and you and your wife are not walking in harmony together before God, don't go across the world as a missionary and don't come present your ministry here. What I'm saying is it's like you have a fireman in the neighborhood and he leaves his own burning house to put out the flames down the street and you say that's noble. Yeah, not when I tell you that his wife and children are still in his house. So what I will tell them is deal with this prerequisite because sometimes busy ministry activity can be a cover-up for the real spiritual needs that are there. All right, now, uh, what about the main duties of wife and husband? If you had to crystallize this into one verse or one verb, chapter 5, immediately after, Filling of the Spirit, what comes out of the mouth, mutual submission. In verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband. So you can see, and again, this many passages bear this out, that wives are called to do many things, but generally those are encapsulated and are facets of that one word there. Submit. Same is said in Colossians 3. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit or as it is proper in the Lord. Somebody says, what about love? Well, uh, that's important. I will point out the biblical love is not primarily a feeling. It's a service. And biblical love only exists in an atmosphere where you are submitted to the Word of God. And that's the only way you can really love somebody. What about Titus 2? There's a good many things mentioned. The older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, etc. But then it ends with this. Obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That is an amazing statement. It says under normal circumstances, a lady who will not obey God in that area, she may as well go out in public and say, this is what I think of the Scriptures, throw it in a bonfire. That's a serious statement that the Holy Spirit makes there. Now let me give some applications from that. And trust me, if you think I'm being hard on the ladies, wait till I talk to the men. Submission, is that a word of initiative or response? Well, ladies are built by, by, to be responders by nature. Respond to him with submission for the Lord's sake. You know, part of the reason why your husband is wired by God who made him to need your respect and submission, and he'll never be a completed man that God intended without it. Well, somebody says, what if I just focus on the other stuff? Giving gifts, contributing to the finances, doing all I can with the intimate relationship. I just, I'm just going to make up for the lack in that. Once again, God's command there is submit and respect, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. Now, for the passages I've mentioned, 
uh, 1 Peter 3, Titus 2, Colossians 3, and Ephesians 5 that all touch on this subject. It's really interesting terminology. Every one of those says wives submit to their own husbands. It uses that exact term every time. Well, doesn't that go without saying? Apparently not. The sin nature is crafty, isn't it? Very crafty. I think part of what's included in that, it's possible for a lady to convince herself that she's submissive in the hypothetical to mankind in general, maybe she'll say, or that she'll say, well, I would be submissive if I had that husband or these characteristics, then I would submit. Why would the Holy Spirit say your own husband? Because that's the command. And he says, as unto the Lord. Now think about that. That doesn't mean he's infallible. That doesn't mean that men should be chauvinistic, domineering jerk bags. That's absolutely not what that means. It doesn't mean that God will not deal with them in discipline. It doesn't mean that there's not complications and situations where a separation or something needs to happen. Those do happen. The Bible deals with those too. But under the normal course of things, it means that you, if you're a wife, may not always understand or even agree with his decision-making. There may be times where God deals with him in leadership direction primarily and wisdom's given to him, and that's the way God does it. And you may have a higher IQ, you may be more talented, you may be a better public speaker, you may have longer devotional times, but that does not change God's ordained chain of authority. Now look at verse 24. As unto Christ. What are some applications? What does that mean? How, how are we supposed to obey Christ? Again, Christ is Lord. It's not saying treat your husband like God. But there's some applications that we are intended to make. Like what? I mean, when you obey the Lord, is it okay to complain? Pout. Scold. Threaten. Nag. Lecture. No. That's not obeying in the scriptural sense of the word. Let me give a couple more thoughts and we're going to move on to the men. Both of these roles that we're talking about are commanded irrespective of what the other person is doing. So the biblical focus is not finding the right person or fixing the person you have but being the right person before the Lord. And all the way through this, the general pattern in these passages in the chains of authority discussion is the one that is submitting is usually mentioned first. Why is that? I'm not really sure why that is. I would think it would be the other way around because leadership always bears a greater responsibility. But it might be because of the great power that godly submission has to influence others. 
Peter really says an amazing thing in 1 Peter 3. He says, if your husband, and I'm paraphrasing, if he doesn't obey the word, either he's not a believer or he's disobedient. He says to try to win him without a word. So, the tendency, and I'm not saying the heart's in the wrong place. I've been preaching a lot of years and I've seen this happen a lot. A lady cares for her husband. She wants him to experience God's blessing, and that's good. But that very desire sometimes will drive her to constantly preach at him and hand him gospel tracts and constantly remind him of what he needs to do. And Peter's saying it's going to have the opposite effect. It's your godly lifestyle that's going to have the most powerful blessing of heaven to shake that man to the core of his soul. All right, now husbands. <clears throat> Again, I, I wonder, I, I, don't, I like to imagine maybe, I don't know, but as this letter was being read, it was a scroll, a letter, and maybe there were Jews in this church and they're looking over their wife going, sweetie, did you, did you hear that? Are you listening to this guy? That's right. You straighten out? Did you, did you catch that? Here, let me take notes for you. I'm, uh, I'll write that down. And maybe the men, if they didn't know what was about to be said, would have thought, men, what are you to do? Command. Wear the britches. Dominate. Fix her. He uses one of the most overwhelming words in the English language. Husbands love your wives. Now again, there's four Greek words used, translated love. Storge, which is natural affection. It's what people have just by being made in the image of God. It's parents loving their children uh, just because they're human, made that way. There's eros, sensual uh, the physical desire. There's a phileo, which is brotherly love. And then there's one that's an attribute of God. Agape. It's a self-sacrificing, supernatural, divine attribute that only appears in the field of human catastrophe when it's coming from God through us. I mean, what's the implication in that? Husbands, just like you need her respect and submission, you need it. You're, you're made that way. She needs your self-sacrificial love above anything else you are called to give. Let's define that a little bit more. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, you see the love of God mentioned in the New Testament, and it's always linked to what took place on that cross. For God so loved the world, the children learn when they're very young, that he gave his only begotten Son. 
It's not that we loved him, but he loved us. So us husbands are commanded to love her and give ourselves for her as Christ did for the church. What did he give? Himself. Husbands, what gift does your wife want from you more than any other gift you could give? You. The real you. Laying down yourself for her. That's more important to her. She needs that more than having the bills paid, dressing fancy, playing with the kids. All those are important. But you miss your main role and she withers. Well, how can that be shown? Submission is a response from her, but love is an initiative. Tell me something. Did you tell Christ to come here and die for you? Let's not forget, none of us would have come to Jesus at all if He didn't come after us. Love is an initiative. Love takes action. Love gets up off its loins and does something about things. Take the leadership of the home, the godly leadership. Stop making excuses. The buck stops with you. You're the one that's going to be called on the carpet before Christ. Have a godly jealousy over your stewardship. She wants your quantity and quality time. Sometimes love is spelled T-I-M-E. She needs your undivided attention at times. Come on, men. Aren't, aren't we really good at being on a different planet? Are you listening to me? Oh, yeah, I'm listening to her. You are? It, I, it's frustrating. I say this to my shame. I hate it when I do that. But when I've, I've got a lot going on and I want to listen to her and she's pouring out her heart and I'm, I'm on the job site and I'm on the roof and I'm out digging a septic trench and I'm fixing somebody's kitchen. I'm standing here preaching maybe. And God wants me there. There. She needs you to verbalize affection. I think, again, all these we can see God do this. How often in the scriptures does God verbalize his affection for you? And you know, yeah, yeah, you're macho. Don't tell me. If, you're, if you've been walking with God any length of time, there are times you would utterly crumble if you didn't know something about how God felt about you. Husband says, of course I love you. I told you back in 1964. Not good enough. Today, did you tell her today? You should. You should have. You tell her tonight too. Keep telling her. She needs you to set seasons apart together when you can. Where you deliberately stoke the fire before it goes out. She needs your ongoing forgiveness as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you because you're not perfect either. 
She needs you to have patience with her because she's a lot closer to being like the church than you are to being like Christ. Those are the comparisons given. How about this one? She needs your true communication. That means actual eye contact and actual discernible vocabulary. I, you know, communicating with your wife is not staring at the football game and grunting. I mean, she, Mitch McConnell makes me laugh sometimes because he's so hard to read. I don't know if you noticed that about him. But he says, I, I prefer to have the luxury of unexpressed thought. In other words, I ain't telling you what I'm thinking. Husbands, when it comes to marriage, a lot of the time you don't have the luxury of unexpressed thought because you've been given a helper suitable who needs to know what's going on in here and here. She wants to know your dreams, your goals, your fears, your joys, your motives, your reasoning. Listen to her without forming a three-step fix-it plan while she's still talking or getting defensive when you're the one that asked her opinion. In other words, you're going to have the guts to ask some tough questions. Honey, what do I do that makes you feel loved? What do I do that makes you feel unloved? And when you hear that answer, don't be carnal and get on the defensive. Listen. You know, I've been a contractor for a lot of years, and I've often thought kind of humorously, I've done, I do new construction and remodels, but especially this is true in remodels, and uh, most notably in kitchen remodels. It's 25% carpentry skill, it's 25% business administration skill, it's 25% communication skill, and it's 25% marital counseling. I've actually, I actually had one of my customers, I kid you not, we're working through a kitchen remodel and he turns to me and he goes, do you do marriage counseling? I said, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I remember one, this is such, such a man thing, and I'm not speaking disparagingly about us, I'm saying learn the communication differences because men and women don't talk and hear the same. We both have a tongue in two years, but boy, howdy sometimes. Those things don't come across the same. Working on a remodel, this is in another state with people you don't know, but the husband comes in and we're making a particular decision in his remodel and he says, you know, I'd kind of like my wife's opinion, but she won't ever give it. And I said, well, let's ask her. So he come in here and she comes in and he said, honey, what do you think about that trim up there that we're going to put up? I want to know your opinion. She goes, I don't really like it. You don't? No. How come? Well, I don't know. I don't think... What do you mean it don't looks good? It, it, look, it matches the rest of the house. I know, but I don't like it. Yeah, but give me a good reason why you don't like it. I mean, it looks good. It jives with everything. And she says, well, just do whatever you want. She walks off and he looks at me and goes, see, she'll never give her opinion. What happened? Well, she gave her opinion. He just didn't listen. 
Be gracious with her even when you disagree with something. Listen to her counsel and value it as your God-given suitable helper. Remember, God said about you through Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. And a wise husband is going to listen to the counsel of his wife and value it. Even if he won't always go along with it, he's going to value it and treat her as a very respected counselor and as God's gift to him. Treat her like she was around before children and that she'll be around after they leave. It's really an unhealthy thing for a married lady to have her entire identity wrapped up in being a mother. It's an important identity. But someday those children are going to fly the nest. And if that identity as wife does not remain through that whole season, it's destructive. Remember her frame just like God does with you. Oh, it's a precious psalm. I've been there a lot lately. Psalm 103. He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Man, aren't you glad that God remembers you're a dust heap? I am. But do you remember that your wife is what God says? Not Listen, this isn't a derogatory term. It's just the way we're made. God calls her a weaker vessel. 1 Peter 3 says to dwell with her according to knowledge. That means an ongoing studying process. What makes her tick? How she communicates. Don't say she didn't give her opinion when she in fact did and you were too bullheaded to listen to it. And the Lord says, give honor unto the weaker vessel. That means treat her like... Uh, great-great-grandmother's fine china that's been passed down. It's really the terminology. It's like, a, it's like a piece of precious fine china. And rather than speak down to her for being a woman and expecting her to be made of iron, you put her in a protected, valuable position. You shield her when you can. You lay down your life for her. You watch your words and tone. And you realize God made her that way on purpose. Men, it's not macho to talk down about ladies. It's cowardly, and it's ignorant, and it's ungodly. I can't stand when I hear guys do that. It's ridiculous. Now, over and above all this, I mean, what's the greatest way you can love your wife? Look at verse 26 and 27. Love your wife's as Christ loved, him, loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. What is Christ trying to mainly accomplish with His love towards His bride, which is the church? It's her sanctification. It's her becoming Christ-like. I mean, men, in your home, who's the spiritual climate? Who's the one that's most sensitive to sin? Who is most zealous with purging evil influence and protecting the family from the devil's darts? Who takes the initiative in family devotions? Who should it be? 
It's good to ask ourselves how we've invested in her spiritual health to prepare her to be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ as his gift. I mean, if you have a believing wife, you've been entrusted with a daughter of the king. They called to love her by leading her and discipling her so that she flourishes spiritually in preparation for the day that Christ returns for her. I've always been fascinated that the word husband is used. We get used to it and we forget that it's an agricultural term. It's a gardening term. And that's no accident. And picture, here's this older man, and he has this closed-off secret rose garden that he's cultivated over the years, and it's just beautiful. And he finds this young man, and he brings him into this garden, and he shows it to him. And he does this day upon day over a period of time. Now, this young man greatly appreciates the beauty of what he's looking at, but he really has no idea the cultivation that it takes to keep a garden looking like that. Well, eventually the old man grows older and one day he presents that young man with a key to this garden and he says, the garden's yours from now on. The young man soon learns a beautiful garden doesn't just happen. But you see, not knowing what to do, he sees some of the roses begin to fade. He starts ripping the petals off. He sees that they wither more, so he tries to punish them by blocking off sunlight or nutrients. He tries lecturing the flowers. He tries threatening the flowers. He tries pruning, pruning the flowers down to nothing. He tries comparing the flower garden with other flower gardens and saying, now why don't you look like that? And years go by, the young man's not so young anymore, and you run across him staring at that garden in bewilderment. Can't hardly recognize it. Thorns and nettles have taken over. Even the blossoms that do remain are sickly and weak. And here he is complaining to you about his defective garden. What would you say? Sir? Something's defective, all right. But it's your gardening skills that are the problem. Hmm? Now look at verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Now is that teaching self-love? Uh, no. No. But what he's saying is he's viewing husband and wife. Husbands, look at your wife as not a separate entity. She's not different from you, fighting against you or with you or whatever. You have been made one in Christ Jesus, and you are facing the enemies that are cast at you. You're facing life's ups and downs and battles and finances and health struggles and spiritual ups and downs. You're facing them as one. To rise and fall together. In other words, only an idiot would go walking down the street every morning and every five steps hit himself in the shin with a hammer and then complain that he can't walk normal. 
Only a fool would tear down his wife and then expect her to flourish alongside him. But a wonderful byproduct of loving her, again, this is done for the Lord's sake, but a byproduct is making her calling of submission easy for her. So these things perpetually work in harmony. Now, when that's done, what else happens? What's the highest purpose of marriage? Verse 30, for we, speaking of believers, are members of his body, that's Christ, of his flesh and of his bones. And then he brings a quotation forward from clear back in the book of Genesis. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, again, a Bible mystery is not a whodunit. A Bible mystery is something that was concealed in the Old Testament and has been revealed in the New Testament. Both of those are important to call something a Bible mystery. He's saying this picture, the fact that Christ and His church are to be typified through the husband-wife union is something that was hidden in Old Testament times and has been revealed for us today. I mean, do you realize that one of the most powerful witnessing tools you can possibly have in this sin-cursed world is your marriage. That's one of it. It's not the only one, but it's a big one. It's a hard one to fake. I want to be careful I'm not infallible, but when you meet a couple that you don't know and spend an hour or two around them, you can tell pretty quickly how things are. Derogatory comments couched in shallow humor. Husband says, well, I don't know. I better ask the boss. Ha, ha, ha. Not funny. Wife says, oh, you know my wife. He just can't do anything right. He, 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 he. He, he, nothing. Something's wrong with that. What percentage of actual married couples in this nation are comprised of two genuine Christian people? Not many. What a blessing that can be in this dark society. All right, now verse 33. Even though this whole mystery of Christ and the church can't be completely understood in the here and now, and God's not going to answer every question. Verse 33, nevertheless, or focus on this, and here we are back to our two essential verbs. Verse 33. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. Husbands, pour your energy in the fear of God into loving her as Christ does and treating her like she is one with you and part of you and not a separate entity. And the wife see that she reverence, 
respectfully submit to her husband. So wives, pour your energy in the fear of God into reverencing, submitting to your own husbands. And both of those verbs are by choice. And what happens is both of you have your deepest needs from one another met. And the garden can keep on blossoming. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe for some. Maybe the best Valentine gift you could give would be some calm time spent talking through these biblical principles without getting defensive or making excuses. I mean, taking time to really assess how things really are and how they can improve. I don't think it's hard to think of hard questions to ask. The difficulty is actually having them come out and be dealt with. Of course, we both have a responsibility, but husbands, the greater bulk is on us. Leadership always bears a greater responsibility. Are you saved sitting here this morning? Somebody says, what does that mean? Well, here's what that means. You're a very great sinner. And if you don't have a way for your sin to be paid for, you will spend an eternity without God in a place called the lake of fire with no escape. But the good news is God himself came and he became a man and he lived a perfect life and he took all your penalty upon him and he was slaughtered and he rose again on the third day to prove that he was God and that he could save you. And you can't do anything to fix your condition. You can't, you can't be in church enough. If you could attend church faithfully for a thousand years, it wouldn't do anything to pay for sin. There's one thing you must do. That is to stop trusting in yourself and believe in Christ who was slaughtered for your sin. And today can be the day of salvation for anybody that will come. God delights to save people. He's a merciful and long-suffering God, but I'm telling you, the door is not going to be open forever. You ever sat and listened to the speed? It's about this fast of deaths happening on planet Earth. Heaven or hell, heaven or hell, heaven or hell, heaven or hell, heaven or hell. What about you? Someday your snap's going to come. It's going to be you. Your number will be called. Your time will be over and you will be under the sod. The world will forget you largely. There's a lot of other snaps that have to happen. God won't forget you. You'll either be his child or his enemy forever. And I implore you, come to Jesus today if you haven't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessed word. And Lord, your word is, it, it is sharp. And I know going through these uh, roles of husband and wife, are, are, they are cutting. But Lord, I thank you that they are, they are sharp and cutting for our own good. And I pray that your word would minister to every soul here in its unique and powerful way. I know that a message like this isn't directly applicable to everybody, but yet we need to teach on this topic. 
I pray that you'd minister to us through your word. And I pray you let it go with us out the door. And I thank you for your patience with us. I thank you that you are in the business of uh, human reconciliation, of buying us out of the slave market of sin, of dusting us off and closing, clothing us in robes of righteousness, and that no matter what dark pathway we've walked, we can now walk as a child of the King from here forward. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.